Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I want to make sure to thank everyone for their support of the show and passing the word along. We've had a lot of listens to the show, many, many, and it's been wonderful. And in 50 countries around the world, very gratifying. And I want to welcome our guest today. She's fantastic. And this is part one of my conversation with her. You will hear the second part next week. Dr. Willoughby Britton is a clinical psychologist, an associate professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University Medical School and the director of Brown's Clinical and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. Her clinical neuroscience research investigates the effects of contemplative practices on the brain and body in the treatment of mood disorders, trauma, and other emotional disturbances. She's especially interested in practice-specific effects, individual differences, and moderators of treatment outcomes, and in other words, which practices are best or worst suited for which types of people or conditions and why. She's probably best known for her research on adverse effects and creating best practices around harms, monitoring, and reporting. As a clinician, she has been trained as an instructor in mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT, and the somatic experiencing, SE, approach to trauma. She now specializes in helping meditators, who are experiencing meditation-related difficulties and providing meditation safety trainings to providers and organizations. Here's part one of my two-part conversation with Dr. Willoughby Britton. Hi, I am very happy to have someone on the show today who's going to be talking about something that a lot of people have talked about going through, but didn't have the words to describe what was happening and why what they were being told to do wasn't working for them. And that why the answer of we'll just do it more was, as they would sometimes describe it, like taking more poison, even though it was supposed to be helping them. And it just never did. And they were blamed for having something wrong with them, that they were not able to get it or be enlightened enough or whatever it was, which is sort of par for the course within certain organizations that it always falls back on you. So I have a special guest on today who's going to help us understand this. And I can't wait for this illumination of this subject, uh, because a lot of people are very tough on themselves thinking that somehow they didn't get it right and they accepted the criticism of themselves and also don't understand why they're having a lot of after effects from having been involved in long-term meditation many hours a day or just for many years. And just before we start too, I remember there was an organization I remember hearing about years ago where In order for people to meditate, they had to meditate staring at the face of the leader of the group so that there was always a connection that you could meditate through him, etc. It's been used, abused, misused, overused in so many ways. So today you're going to be able to help us 
understand this. So I'd love you to take a few moments and introduce yourself and then we'll start talking. Sure. My name is Willoughby Britton. I am an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University Medical School. I'm the director of the Clinical and Affective Neuroscience Lab at Brown, and I'm a clinical psychologist, and I am the founder of an organization called Cheetah House, which is a nonprofit that provides uh, information and resources to people who have encountered meditation-related adverse effects. Wonderful. And I'm so happy to have you on the show today. We get to talk to each other at long last because I I kept hearing your name. Ditto. I keep hearing your name and I can't believe that the first time we're ever going to talk to each other is going to be recorded, but so, so it goes. I'm just glad to be in conversation with you. We can also talk when it's not being recorded when, if you would like, and I I would like that. I value that very much. And yes, I'm glad that you mentioned Cheetah House. I know some of the people involved in that as well, who, who are very good, just, kind, and smart people who have been through the ringer and who wanted to be able to turn that into being a resource for others, which I always value, and the world needs more of those. So I'm curious to hear from you, first of all, how you became interested in this subject. I get asked a lot uh, the same question about my field. So I'm just wondering what the interest was. I got interested in meditation myself because I had a childhood friend that committed suicide when I was in college. And so my dad sent me a book by Jack Cornfield called A Path with Heart. And I carried it around with me like a Bible for probably a decade and, you know, became very, very engaged with meditation practice. I probably had PTSD at that point. And so I was just trying to use meditation to manage that and, you know, became a bit of an evangelist myself. Um, which I think is a pretty, pretty common trajectory for people. And so when I went to graduate school at the University of Arizona, I was doing a PhD in clinical psychology. And my dissertation was on the effects of meditation on sleep. And I was in a sleep lab. So I was going to be, you know, one of the first people to prove that mindfulness training was going to be good for sleep, but, you know, measure sleep objectively with brain waves. And so I was really going to push the field forward. And, you know, there's, this is a whole other topic, but related is that, you know, the science of meditation and the promotion of meditation are kind of one and the same. And so that was sort of my job as a scientist to promote meditation. But when I got the data back, actually, it was completely opposite of anything that I had predicted. And so I assumed that meditation was going to be relaxing and good for sleep. And every way we looked at the data, meditation increased cortical arousal. So we had more awakenings, we had more you know, light sleep stage one, we had more fast waves, we had more less slow waves, it was directly correlated with the amount of practice, like it was just there's no way around these data. And I didn't publish it. I sat on the data for probably five years, because it wasn't gonna promote the brand, the practice, the the ideology, any of it. And during that time, I went on a meditation retreat and was telling a meditation teacher about my findings, you know, that basically meditation was causing insomnia. You know, I got kind of scolded by the meditation teacher who said, well, you know, I don't know why you psychologists are trying to make meditation into this relaxation technique. Everyone knows that if you meditate enough, you stop sleeping. So I was like, wait a second. So what, you know, a couple different things came out of that conversation. One was 
what other assumptions are we mental health professionals making because we haven't, we're not really like experts in Buddhism. And what other secrets are meditation teachers sitting on that they're not kind of broadcasting to the public because it isn't good for, you know, advertising. And so that was, you know, in the back of my mind. So I did publish the data eventually, but when I came to Brown for my residency, I worked at an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And while I was there, and this is just a single year in time, there were two meditators who got referred to the hospital who had just come off a 10 day meditation retreat and were floridly psychotic, you know? And I was thinking, what are the chances of like two in one year? That seems kind of like a lot. So I went back to that same teacher and I was like, well, have you ever seen this before? And, and, you know, I remember like there not being a verbal answer, but I remember there being this look on her face that was like, oh shit. Like, you know, I could just tell that there was a moment of recognition and that they had definitely seen this before and that, that they weren't, you know, there was a, there was a secret here that needed to be investigated. And so that basically became the beginning of this huge study that we did called the varieties of contemplative experience, which was literally like just going to meditation teachers, going to the biggest centers across the US and Canada and some in Europe, and just going to the centers and asking the directors and the main teachers, what type of challenges have you seen? What, how do you interpret them and make sense of them? And what do you do about it? So that was basically the origin story of, of that study, which took 10 years to execute. And we collected over a hundred interviews from meditation teachers and people who were describing their own experiences. So both teachers who talked about their students, but also often when we talked to the teachers, they would kind of slip into the first person. Oh, well, when this happened to me, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, wait a second, we're going to do another interview as you as yourself. And so when we've, when, when all was said and done about 60% of the people who they themselves had had meditation-related challenges were meditation teachers and sometimes lineage holders and directors of centers. It was pretty shocking. You know, in the meantime, I've been public, you know, running this lab and doing clinical research on the the, the beneficial effects of meditation for anxiety and depression and clinical samples. And so most of my research is actually on the benefits. But of course, since I'm the only one really doing a lot of research on the negative sides, it's more of what I've become known for, but that's sort of the backstory of how I got here. There's something very powerful about it starting from a real heartache where it was something that got you through something that was unimaginable. There's so much about what happens to us that triggers the need to have anchors and having someone you care about commit suicide, knowing that someone also could get to that emotional state where they feel so desperate. You were needing to get through that, but I wonder also just making sure that you and and others wouldn't get to that point, would have something to do, would, would have a place to go, a practice, so that they didn't get into that state of desperation and feeling hopeless. So I understand you wanting to make sure that people hold on to it in a positive way, if it had been positive for you. And it is disturbing, upsetting, disappointing all across the board when you find out that there are actually some dangers involved. Do you find that one of the things that happens for people is that it has to do with how they practice it or their wiring? 
in combination with the practice? Because I know you were talking about people who had been hospitalized. I'm wondering what you see there. Let me back up a little bit because I think that the research has unfolded in a very like systematic way. And I think we have better answers to some questions than others. And that's just this kind of where we are at right now. You know, the, we started off with this qualitative study and we have 3,000 pages of, of qualitative stories and just, you know, kind of free form responses. And we came up with 59 categories of meditation related challenges across seven domains. So the cognitive domain is things like things related to thinking. So either racing thoughts or just no thoughts at all, mind emptiness, and also delusions. And then what we call concept loss. So the complete inability to form concepts, perceptual changes, like, I mean, obviously hallucinations, but probably more commonly things like perceptual hypersensitivity. So sounds get very loud, sensitivity to light, emotional or affective changes. So you see both like, you know, affective flooding, um, flashbacks, emotional ability, anger, rage, fear, terror, kind of an increase in every kind of possible emotion, but also we also see complete loss of emotion. So people lose emotions and the ability to have affection for others. We see a wide range of somatic changes. So insomnia, the first one I discovered, you know, lots of pain syndromes, tinnitus, headaches, body pain, a lot of like somatic energy. We just published a paper on, you know, what we call else's energy-like somatic experiences with feelings of like electricity going through the body, sometimes associated with convulsions. We had a domain called conative, which is motivational. So and that can also go in either direction. So sometimes people are like enlightenment or bust, basically. They, they just suddenly are on fire. They, all they want to do is meditate. They leave their job. They leave their families. So there's sometimes this sort of very hyper-focused motivation. And then also we see a complete loss of motivation where people like literally stare at a wall for two years and they don't leave their house. So, you know, both extremes. And then my favorite category is uh, the changes in sense of self. Um, and that took me a long time to unpack because the sense of self is so complicated and there's so many different kinds of senses of self. So, you know, an embodied self is one type, a narrative self, a story of me, sense of agency, you know, there's all sorts of different senses of self. And so in Buddhist derived meditation, which is the kind that I study, the idea of no self is a really important ideological doctrine. And what does that mean? I actually teach a class on the sense of self at Brown now because it was so complicated that I learned enough to teach a class on it. So that's one of them. And the last one is the social and occupational impairment. I have been fantasizing and also kind of hesitant to, to talk to you because I'm like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. Because <laughs> I wanted, I, I understand phenomenology, the psychology, the neuroscience, everything that I'm trained in, I can talk about. But I think what I'm so interested in and where I've sort of ended up is on the social dynamics that are contributing to this. And I've gotten, I've started to read all about authority structures and totalitarianism and uh, Alexander Stein and, and, you know, all these different places. So that's, it's not mm -hmm. my field. It's not my training. So I'm still a little getting my words around those topics. So and that's why I'm excited to talk to you, but that's kind of like the next frontier is like, how are all these dynamics contributing and might they be contributing in a more primary way than the way that we had normally, you know, hypothesized it. So I think the original model was here we have these 59 categories of phenomenology 
And that's what we call sort of primary phenomenology. They're caused by the practice. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of neuroscientific mechanisms as to why that happens with different practices. And then as we, as I started seeing more and more individual people and hearing more stories one-on-one, I realized that there was, there was another layer to this, which was how are they being interpreted and held and responded to by various not just meditation teachers and communities, but also non-related clinicians, you know? Mm-hmm. So like basically the entire helping profession is in some ways contributing to a syndrome, you know, where people don't believe them or they, you know, there's a lot of victim blaming going on. There's a lot of just sort of tertiary, secondary and tertiary harm and, and traumatization. Over the years, I've been kind of realizing that that might be a much bigger piece than just a secondary thing. Maybe it's primary. So I don't know. Well, there's so many things that I want to say in response to what you've said so far. The sense of self is something that people come up against quite a lot. I get asked a lot, how do I define myself? I was raised in an environment where I didn't have a self. I wasn't allowed to. I wasn't allowed to even have a preference for anything that I like. I couldn't decide what would make me happy, what would make me angry, what I stood for. My name was changed. I didn't know who I was. That's for people who get involved later on too. And so they will say to me, I mean, I get asked questions that typically therapists don't get asked. They're the ones that are sort of the gut-wrenching questions of how do I find out who I am and what is right to be? And how do I know that I'm right when I figure out if something speaks to me or not? How do I gauge that? So to know that there is a practice that people are getting introduced to or that it's being kind of forced upon them in certain environments that is having them make a departure from the self, it is such a difficult and bumpy ride back. It's really something that needs to not be taken lightly. And for anyone out there who is teaching meditation, mindfulness practice, whatever that means to you, there is something very important about knowing that you could be playing with fire, even though it seems very calming and innocent. The other part is, I find that when people are in cults, things are called other things. So if you have electricity going through your body, well, that's the Holy Spirit, or that's the energy that I'm transmitting to you that now you're transmitting to the universe. But no, it could be that you're having some sort of nervous system reaction, or you're sitting on a nerve that is actually causing you pain. There really can't be somehow the descriptive in the negative within a cultic group. Sometimes it's a sign or it's for your benefit. So people, I think, endure a lot of things that are unpleasant also and kind of torturous thinking it's sort of adopting the positive diagnostic terminology that the cult leader gives you. The other problem I find with cults is that cult leaders are usually completely inflexible. So that if you say, can I do this a little bit less? If they said you need to do this for four hours a day, they're not usually willing to make an adjustment based on what you need, because that will be considered you challenging them and their perfection. So as not to have a narcissistic injury, because they matter more than you in that moment, They'll make sure that you keep to those four hours and maybe increase it. And so people do say that they feel like the thing that was causing them 
distress was something that they just needed to keep doing more and more and more, which caused them to really have more physical symptoms, have more emotional symptoms, but also have more of that splitting of the self, which is really tragic. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I'm not the first person to have this reaction, but I don't hang around on like cult forums. Right. And like (laughs) even that word, like I'm like, she said it, she said the C word. Oh, no. You know, because I'm like, we're talking about mindfulness here. We're talking about like, you know, this is in schools, it's in prisons. It's like endorsed by the U.S. government. It's like it's it's standard care in the U.K. It's it's state sponsored by the NHS. Like there's no charismatic guru. There's no you know, we don't we're not that. But yet, like all of those things that you just said, I'm like, wow, they're all there. Like, you know, I can show you some of the reviews I got from reviewers when I like call it adverse effects of meditation. And they're like, oh, no, no, they're not adverse effects. They're, um, you know, they're they're healing, you know, and I'm like, well, we ran the data and like they don't predict better outcomes. So they're not really healing, you know, like and it's, it's just amazing that this response of reinterpreting these things that if, if this was a, you know, a side effect out here, I brought this as a, as a, as a prop, these are the side effects. So I'm holding up a giant piece of paper. That's like as tall as I am. This is, these are the side effects of Prozac. So, you know, if, if the same, if the side effects that these 59 categories that we're listing, if these were a side effect of Prozac, that people would call them side effects or adverse effects, and we just keep going. And there are a lot of them are the same effects that are on that piece of paper. But suddenly, because it's from this meditation practice, suddenly, you know, people are coming out of the woodwork and doing the most bizarre gymnastics to make it anything other than, than harm, including researchers, by the way. And so now I'm like, I'm starting to see this like pervasive and systemic multi-layered system of people that are engaging in what you would call cultic dynamics. Like we're seeing people doing, acting in very weird things to maintain this pristine category that this thing must be unassailable. And that is a, that's a very bizarre thing to do in medicine because nothing's unassailable. Everything has side effects at some point. And everything has a downside at some point. And the fact that like what are normally called not cult members, but like upstanding scientists and clinicians and people who recommend policy to governments, that they're the ones that are actually doing this weird mental gymnastics. That's the part that I'm like, I got to talk to Rachel Bernstein. (laughs) What's going on here? I mean, what is so interesting is that you have something at its core that is not evil. Uh, It can be helpful and it can be a good source of feeling centered or calmed or whatever your goal is, and it can get you there. What happens, though, is that from what I've seen, unless the practice, of course, is is something that's abusive from the start and no matter how you use it, it's still abusive. Something like this can be used in a safe way, but there has to be a dialogue between the person who's practicing it and the person who's introducing you to it. If there isn't, if there isn't a checking in, and also if you're not allowed to not be getting something positive out of it, or if within certain circles, you're publicly shamed for not getting something positive out of it, then it's an abuse of 
something and it could be any practice. I mean, you know, when you have something also that is seen as it, then you knock everything else out as a potential for healing and help. Uh, it's very much like people who get involved in a group and I'll use the C word, the <laughs> cult word, get involved in a cult. And then from that moment forth, there's only one source of information that you need for the rest of your life. And you'll find that, that all the books are written by the cult leader or all, all the philosophy is from that one source. And I think one of the signs of wisdom in the world is being able to access a variety of resources. And that's why I'm always happy to refer people to other people in this field. There are too few of us, but I think we come at it sometimes from different viewpoints. And I think I want people to get a sense of it from different angles, because I think that's sort of the most respectful way to treat people. But also, why would I withhold information from other people, just like some of these people who are, who are teaching this are, I think, really withholding kind of access for other people to get other sources of help because this has to be it. If what they're telling you that you need is somehow not helping you, if the source of that information is someone who's healthy, they'll say, you know what, I just might not be doing this the way that is right for you, or this isn't really all that you need. You might need something else, or this really isn't good for you at all. But again, because you have these people who take it so personally and Usually this is, I mean, I don't mean to be flip about it, but sort of like the one trick ponies, like this is what I'm talking about and this is my field of expertise. And then they're not going to have that flexibility. They're not going to be open to the fact that it could be that it's not useful because then what, what happens to their whole career? A lot of people also have this sense that once they've said something out loud, once they've written their journal article, once they've done their interview about something, they have to stay with it. They can't transform their vision of it. A lot of people don't have the confidence to do that. Unlike you, where you're saying not only did it present itself with having many more permutations than I realized, but that you can see it in the gray that there are positives and negatives and anywhere in between. But a lot of people can't see that. And so, yeah, you're going to be dealing with hostility because there's a defensiveness. I mean, I think it's kind of juvenile. I think people don't realize how they're coming across in a way that doesn't really work for them when they're sticking to the message, no matter what. It really can make you question the messenger. I mean, I think there is a certain amount of identity defense, like what you're talking about. I mean, there is data on that. I mean, there we found that people who have a declared conflict of interest, a financial conflict of interest, they are the creator of some mindfulness program, for example, or they've written a book or whatever, that they statistically, quote unquote, find fewer adverse effects in their studies. So, I mean, so we know that that's happening even on an unconscious level and that there's some kind of both ideological commitment and, you know, financial investment that's playing a role. However, I would also like to add, and this is where the systemic part comes in, where I'm just like, my mind starts to get blown by this like big brother effect kind of thing is that, I mean, I'm, I'm a trained mindfulness teacher. I was taught how to respond to almost anything. Like you basically give the same answer for every single thing, which is, well, how are you relating to this? You know, 
that's at some point, you know, there are all these answers and all these ways that I was taught to respond, which now I'm like, oh my God, all of them are ways of preserving the pristine category of the practice. Like no matter, they're all like, they all sound very wise and like thoughtful, but actually they all go back to the same source, which is, you know, the problem is you, you have resistance. Oh, you have, you know, I don't use the one that, you know, your it's, it's your ego. That's one that's pretty famous, but we, I wasn't taught that particular one, but there's all these other ones that I was taught to say that I was never taught to say, you know what? Mindfulness doesn't do everything. And maybe this isn't the right time for you to practice mindfulness. Maybe there's something better. That was never an option. Um, and it's now one that I'm like, Hey, how about this option? And people get really upset about it. And so I think that like there, it's more than just being, uh, defensive and juvenile it's also like the entire system already accounted for that possibility I mean it you know and it's it's similar and I hate to use this word because it's so charged but I've gotten really interested in rape culture you know it's a parallel system where like really nice good meaning people and women are actually participating in silencing victims of sexual assault even therapists, as you know, will ask, you know, woman comes to them, I was raped and they, and even the therapist asked, were you drinking? Is the first thing they ask, you know? And it's like, oh man, even the therapists are indoctrinated with this stuff. So it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like, I mean, I can't tell you how many people at Cheetah House who come to me who've had meditation related problems have told me that their doctors or therapists didn't believe them that meditation could cause this problem you know, and they're, so they're basically getting trauma, re traumatized by their own therapist. So it's a very, very similar kind of like culture. Yeah. Very similar. It's very interesting. Right. I mean, we have adopted so much of our own programming that we have to be careful about. We have to be mindful of. So there are going to be these knee-jerk reactions that we have, I guess, even as clinicians, where we go right to how we've been trained to think about things, but not in a way that actually really is helpful in the moment or accurate in the moment. There's so much of the victim-blaming culture that is woven into all of this, which of course then just shuts people down. The dangers of whatever practice it is, uh, they're going to go underreported because of it, which is a shame. I think that, you know, I, I remember one time going to get some um, continuing education credits at a local university. They were offering some classes and then they had a meditation class and I hadn't been involved in a meditation practice. So I wanted to be able to participate and learn how to do it. And what I found, and I remember leaving the room afterwards, and what I found was that it was the most tense group of people of all of the different courses that we were taking. Um, it was like four to six units. It was a weekend at this university. Within the room where people were meditating, there was so much tension and anger, impatience, if anyone opened and closed the door, you would hear, oh, you know, just these sounds like, how dare you? How dare you interrupt what I'm doing? And I wanted to say to them, again, in kind of a flip way before I understood that this can happen, that you could have these heightened senses and uh, irritations and kind of restlessness. I wanted to get up to say to everyone, you know what? Clearly this isn't working. <laughs> and I was wondering what that was about. 
I also know that there are people who say that they would get very restless, but even hostile. Like I had a, a client who said to me, I really enjoyed meditation until I started realizing that I had these fantasies of just punching out the person who had mistreated me when I was young. I've never had that thought before. And is there a connection? She was involved within a kind of a cultic system at the time. And the, the cult leader said that that was of course, a repressed memory, and she had been abused as a child, etc. So it couldn't have been the practice. She accused her parents then of, of being abusive, and they hadn't been, and they didn't know where that was coming from. But I wonder now about talking about mindfulness. I was working at a school for many years where they would have a specialist come in or a whole team come in to teach mindfulness to the students. And a lot of the kids didn't know what it was about. Some of the kids really did benefit from just having a chance to slow down and just breathe and be aware. But I wonder if part of the issue becomes that it's kind of this non-measurable goal, like what is mindfulness? And is it this unmeasurable thing like enlightenment or transcendence or self-realization? Like, how do you know you're there? How do you know you've achieved it? I'm curious to hear from you about that. Well, I mean, I'm a scientist, so we use, you know, validated measures that different stakeholders have decided are important, like well-being and depression and anxiety and things like that have measurable endpoints. And I think when there is an endpoint that is vague and unmeasurable and keeps shifting depending on circumstances and power dynamics, then I start to get extremely suspicious. You know, I haven't quite, I don't quite have my like the list of top, the top 10 indications that you're in a cult. I don't have those <laughs> down. I know you, you do, but right, I think right. one of them is like, is there some sort of like vague awesomeness that is totally nobody will describe but they keep letting you project all your fantasies onto it like if that if that exists I would be very worried you know that they're not being specific about you know I mean part of informed consent is like being extremely explicit about what are the potential benefits and the potential drawbacks if enlightenment is on the table then you need to be forthcoming as to exactly what that is that's one of those words that like people are allowed to project you know all kinds of like whatever they want onto it and nobody's going to correct them because it's such a powerful way of marketing. But I also think that is enlightenment going to make you more functional in the world? Because this is what happens is it gets, it ends up getting weaponized against people where they're like, oh, you thought you're going to be more functional. Oh, enlightenment doesn't make you more functional. Oh, you can't function at all. Well, yeah, of course. You know, and the person's like, well, wait a second. I thought enlightenment was going to make me awesome in every way. And so, so it just, it's like, I don't know. I, I'm very suspicious of big categories. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that makes me a cynic. No, I mean, I think it's uh, being a scientist because what you're noticing is that there's something also within that system where there is someone leading you towards this, where you can then become much more dependent on them because they're the ones who decide when you've achieved something that's invisible. Right. Invisible virtue. Exactly. Big red flag for me. Right. Exactly. So, and if someone is charging you a lot for these sessions, they're going to make sure that you don't achieve whatever it is for a very long time, or you're almost there. You're almost there. You're almost there. You're almost there. And that's also a red flag. There's something is right around the corner, right? You just need to come 12 dozen more times. But I think it would be good for us to talk at some point before we finish today about 
how people can define it for themselves so that they're not having to give it over to someone else to define it, someone who might have something to gain by them not yet achieving it. Yep. This is definitely my sort of strategy of rehabilitating meditators back to what I wish that system was was like from the beginning. You know, what I, I think mindfulness really could be this awesome thing if it was used as a form of empowerment. Like if it was, if it was empowered by the client, when I talk to people who call me up from Perchita house, the first thing I ask them is, you know, why did you start meditating? And so then they have lots of different reasons. They, it's funny because often they all end up doing the same practice, but it was all for different reasons, which is, you know, it's like, well, no practice can do that. So, you know, are you even doing the right practice? You know, so, so I think that like, the first thing is Asking people, you know, what's important to them? Where do they want to go? What does well-being mean to them? If they say enlightenment, well, what do you mean by that? You know, and some, and a lot of times they, you know, they really have to think about it. And they, nobody ever says, by the way, I don't want to be reborn. That's never the answer. It has never come up once, which is like, if you look up what actually happened to the Buddha, that's pretty close to at least one definition. But anyway, a lot of people often want to feel more connected to themselves, to others, and to the world. That's one of the most common responses that I hear, either just what I want to get out of meditation and then, or what they think enlightenment is going to be like. And so, and then they tell me about the practice they're doing. And often it's when meditating by myself and following my breath for five years, you know, I've been following my breath and somehow that's going to make me feel more connected to other people. So I'm like, I kind of reflect back, like, how would that work exactly? You know, like, how would that, how, does, does it make sense to you that the practice that you're doing is, is moving you towards your goal? So just kind of like, in some ways, a CBT approach to like, is this practice, how would you know exactly? Like, forget about everything you've heard, but like anything that you do, how would you know that your life is getting better? Like, and not just that I would be happier, but like, what are the like concrete measurable outcomes? I would have more friends. I would feel I could tolerate my mother for more than 15 minutes at a time, you know, (laughs) you know, like very measurable things, you know, and then, and like, how would you know if it wasn't working? Well, I would spend more time by myself. I would cry myself to sleep more nights than not, like really, really specific things. And then you have like a framework to work like, okay, now we're going to like choose something to do and see whether it gets you there. And it can be the same practice that you were doing or it can be, you know, um, but have some system very much the way that we test things in science, but like some kind of system that you can systematically, I think the important part is they get to choose what the outcomes are and the ones that are important to them. Because, you know, I can choose like, oh, I'm going to define well-being according to the World Health Organization. And they're like, well, like, where's the part about connection to others? Like in that questionnaire, you know, I think it's important for them to define their outcomes and then have very concrete ways of measuring them that are not wishy-washy, but like not, not just feelings, but like literally like things that show up in your life differently. I really like that. It's very grounded. It's very tangible. And I think that's very important with something like this to have things that are tangible and provable. And so similar to what you were saying about sort of how would you know and asking yourself certain questions, it's akin to what I say to people when they're involved in a relationship that's not healthy for them or um, a cultic group, where I will say, what were you initially promised? And has it been 
achieved or provided for you in some way after all of your hard work? Are you any closer to that? Or have your initial reasons been shifted by someone else into their reasons and their goals, and it's no longer yours? I will sometimes also ask people to take a break to see if it really is the thing that's making the impact or if they don't need something anymore, or I I will ask them to take a break, especially if their practice is connected to someone who I think is using that connection for their own gain. And if they feel fine without it, or they might even feel better without it. I wonder if you've seen in talking to people that they are going to be different in answering questions and assessing when they're doing it on their own versus within a group, because there's social contagion that we deal with within groups, but also people want to please a leader or the person who is teaching them something. They also don't want to be the only ones in the room not getting it or not doing it right. And so I don't know if you found that it's different for certain people that when they shift from doing it within a group to doing it to themselves or for themselves and by themselves, that things then shift and maybe they're not as positive about it when they're doing it on their own, or they feel that they're able to personalize it. What do you think? I mean, I think there's a whole process there. It really depends on the group that they're involved with. I mean, it it might not even be a group. It might be an app. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things that's going on here is that there's not necessarily agents involved. The system is much more decentralized than sort of the typical cult dynamic. So that's just an interesting thing. So I, I think, you know, this it, it could be different from everyone, but I think there is a general process that I see where often the systems, like you said, are set up to not allow people to do whatever they want. Like there is a right goal. There's a right way to do things. There's certainly no allowance for criticizing the system. If there's one rule, that's one of them. Or to like put limitations on it. Well, meditation isn't the right thing for me right now. I'm going to go for a walk instead or whatever, do something else. And so I think that for a lot of people that I see this core tension show up so much. And this is like, if you're a therapist out there, you're going to be like, oh, that one, Um, the core tension of like, you know, the needs of the organism, the desires, the preferences of the person versus the membership and belonging in the group, the classic tension. And for a lot of people, the loss or the perceived loss and rejection is too much. Or there's there's just a process where people are like, really hiding from themselves, like what's going on. They're denied, they're, they're justifying to themselves that there's not really harm going on or that they're really, they're doing exactly what they want to be doing with the practice. But like the way that they're speaking is so scripted. Like there's a certain kind of language and certain kinds of words that people use that are like, this isn't really a person here. This is like a caricature or, you know, this is like the splitting that you're talking about. Like the real person, like I haven't seen them yet because they're just, there's a whole mindfulness speak where you, you just you speak in all these, these, these sort of this specific language. And then when people start not doing that and they start speaking differently, I mean, there is a very real process of being corrected, shamed, scolded, rejected. I mean, that, that is part of the process of kind of, you know, it's funny because they actually use the metaphor of waking up which is often the, you know, the metaphor of, of being enlightened, but they find that as soon as you start questioning the system and then the system starts to retaliate, then I think that that's the tipping point because they're like, 
either they're like, oh my God, I cannot lose the system. And they really go into some kind of dissociative mode to deny everything. Or they're like, wow, these people aren't really that nice. Like they're, you know, like there's a lot of like lip service to compassion and helping the suffering. But as soon as I raise my hand and like sort of question the practice, like people are pretty mean and aggressive and like not very compassionate. And then I think, you know, the eyes get open really quickly when that happens. Oh, yeah. And also sometimes not quickly enough, because I think people have the propensity, I think when they're when they are trying to do a practice like mindfulness, I think that they have a propensity to be open to seeing their part in things and wanting to understand how they can try harder to make something better in their life. And so they might kind of fall into believing this idea of no pain, no gain, which I think is, you know, wrong on so many levels, or that they will take on this idea that they're just not doing it right for a very long time. I will sometimes tell people to notice the pronouns when you say that something isn't working for you. If the response is, well, that's because you, no matter what, then you need to find a different space to do that in, or you need to do that on your own. Because there is this sort of Teflon presence in in front of you that's just not willing to look at how to do it differently or how that it might be negatively affecting you. If someone says, well, that might be because I didn't offer you instruction or offer you a safe space to do this, whatever it is, or it might be because it is not the best practice for you right now, or you're, it's not the right timing. But if it's immediately, well, that's because of you, then I think you really, really want to be careful and notice how many times it, the there's this boomerang effect. And I also wonder about this hostility. I've noticed that the people on my show who are the most nervous about telling their story, it's very interesting, are the Scientologists or former Scientologists and people who want to talk about their experiences in AA. And who would have thunk that they would be equally nervous, but that there is for some people that they want to talk about how something bad happened to them within a 12-step program and there aren't safeguards in place, et cetera. And they have been so roundly attacked because you can't say anything bad about it because then other people won't go to it and it won't be able to continue saving people's lives. It is important for some people, pivotal, life-changing, life-saving for some and for others. It is this place that destroys their confidence and makes them dependent and where they can be abused by their sponsor and there's nothing they can do. So it's all across the board, but that they're so anxious about talking about it. And I think, and it's very similar here that there is something very valuable about it for some people and for others, it is somehow it breaks down and it doesn't work for them. And there's some inherent faults within it, but it's too dangerous to talk about. And it's such a shame. I mean, you're reminding me of an article that I read just this week 
the same exact dynamics, but for vegans. So people who realize like they're totally into veganism, they're like, I'm not going to kill animals, they're animal rights activists. It's very much part of their identity. And then they find that the diet itself like really doesn't work for their bodies. And they start to get really sick and they lose their hair. And like, and so their doctors are like, you really should eat, start eating protein again. And then they do, and they feel much better. And their, their vegan coworkers or friends, or they, they retaliate against them. They get death threats just for eating protein again. So I think that like, I think the other thing that I'm realizing, and again, like you must be like, yes, this is like very obvious, but you know, for, for the, the rest of us, I think that like cult dynamics might be the default. They're so sensationalized in the media that like, they're very like unusual types of groups and people. But I actually think it's like, unless you really go out of your way to learn about the dynamics and like really put yourself through the ringer in your organization to not repeat them, you're going to repeat them. It's just, it's just how we work. I don't know. That just And so I'm also like, I'm seeing, I used to be the poster child for, you know, promoting mindfulness and meditation and was, you know, in some ways venerated for that and given all sorts of opportunities and stroked and lauded. And, you know, and as soon as I started questioning the system, like the love bombing disappeared and I get threats and I get, you know, it's just, it's, it's that it's like there it is the same dynamics you know scientology repeated and yeah it's kind of heartbreaking one more thing before you go I am so happy that you were able to start hearing my conversation with Dr. Willoughby Britton. She is somebody who is this foremost specialist in a particular area and has had to grapple with being at odds with it and the way that it is done or the way that it's overdone or the way that it is done in a way that is not right for the people it's being done for while still preserving the fact that it has merit and that it has some most definitive positives. And how do you balance that out? It's a hard thing. There are a lot of people who will say to me, well, are you just against religion or something that is a very kind of overreaching statement? It's like sometimes when I talk about the dangers within 12-step programs. So does it mean that all of them are bad or every minute of it is bad? No, it's to point out the potentials. It's to point out the fact that there are going to be some potential dangers. And in order for people to have a good experience, they need to know about them. And especially for people who are going to be practitioners and teachers, they need to be able to know how they're going to provide this for people in a responsible way, in a way that actually serves the purpose that's intended. So I loved when Willoughby and I started talking and she said, before we started recording, she said to me, you're my hero, which I loved because it is a very sweet thing to say 
from someone you respect so highly, but also that within this field, what I'm noticing is that there are a lot of us who do similar and parallel work in terms of educating others, and we are each other's heroes. So I love that she has really moved this forward and has been able to say, I'm willing to take a risk. I'm willing to take the risk of saying that there is something inherently problematic and I want you to know it so you can do it safely. I am very interested to have you hear the second part where she gets much more into the pushback and some of the hate that she's gotten and just trying to understand the need for some people to have this remain pristine and perfect in everyone's eyes. But that's not, I think, ultimately a mature way of looking at anything. So when we talk about black and white thinking, you know, we know that there are going to be inherent issues with that because it's never going to be one or the other. When she talks about the fact that meditation can increase a cortical arousal where you become more vigilant, where you can have more sleeplessness, more restlessness, more agitation. I'm remembering a time And I know I talked to Willoughby about this, but that I was at a conference at a local school where I was able to get some continuing education credits. And it is something that therapists and other professionals need to get uh, every few years. And I like being able to go to take courses having to do with things that I haven't been exposed to before. And one of them was a, a meditation course It was mindfulness and meditation. And it was so interesting to talk to Dr. Britton because some of the things that were the takeaways for me were highlighted and underscored from her talking. And now I understood a little bit more about it. I noticed that when people were taking other courses at this university where the courses were being held, people were pretty relaxed and people could open the door if they were arriving late or leave to do whatever. And there was some chatter and a car going by and sort of random noises that are life noises. And it was not a problem. It was only a problem in this mindfulness and meditation workshop. That's when I remember my takeaway from it was, this was the most tense group of people I've ever been in and how ironic that this was the mindfulness and meditation workshop. But I guess, ultimately, not so ironic. I found that whenever anyone opened the door, because we were in silence, you would hear these kinds of sounds that sounded kind of, if I can be critical about it for a moment, that sounded immature. Uh, But now I know it has to do with just agitation created for some people by this where someone opened the door, I would hear people say or make the sound, ugh, like they were just irritated by this person doing a thing that made a sound. And if someone coughed, you also heard, ugh. And if someone sneezed, God forbid. And if someone bumped into anyone else or needed to answer a phone that was ringing, that was the worst. And People left, I think some people felt very relaxed and others you could see that they were just so much more irritable than when they walked in. And I didn't know what that was about. And it kind of had this air of 
how dare you? How dare you interrupt me? But I don't know if it came with that attitude. I think cult leaders have that kind of attitude. But I think the practitioners don't necessarily. They just are in such a heightened state of arousal and agitation, at least some of them. So I have a much greater understanding of what was happening there. And then ultimately, you have to ask yourself, is this a good thing? Is this what is helpful for them or not? Within unhealthy situations where practitioners are not schooled in how this can be detrimental to some people or handled in a detrimental way, that people are told they're doing it wrong. People are told that sometimes they need to do it more. And it reminds me of all the people I talked to who were in situations where they were told to get some kind of treatment that was offered to them within a cultic group. And it was causing them to have physical pain, sometimes migraines. It was causing them to feel agitated, sometimes even depressed. And they were told to do it more because that's the only medicine that was offered there, basically. It's the only pill they had. So if it's not working, it's like you took one Tylenol, well, maybe you need another. Or really, ultimately, for a lot of people, maybe you shouldn't take any at all if it's having this impact on you. But for practitioners who only know how to provide this and also might have some ego in connection with it, that they want to be able to say, this is something that works, it's hard for them to shift gears. And it's hard for them to say to someone at times, well, maybe this isn't for you. And maybe you need to have something different. Or maybe I need to shift the way I'm doing it with you. Or maybe you just do it for half the time. In order for anyone to have a healthy experience, there needs to be that flexibility. There needs to be that fluidity. And there needs to be, on your part, if you're the one doing it, the ability for you and the freedom for you to be able to say, I think this isn't working for me. And in fact, it's hurting me and I need to be able to move on. And again, as we've discussed here, depending upon how people respond to you setting a boundary, then you know you're in a healthy space or not. Talk to you next week. I look forward to having you hear part two of my conversation with Dr. Willoughby Britton. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.